Good. Okay, so I put up on the slide there the well-known words of Jesus, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. You might not immediately see the connection with this passage, but I, I hope you will by the end. So Proverbs finishes with this acrostic. It's actually an acrostic. Um, each verse starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, it's obviously titled The Noble Wife or The Wife of Noble Character. And um, it's really a summary of all the teaching in this book. It's a case study, if you like, of wisdom in practice or perhaps if I might say wisdom in action. And um, just in case you've missed this point, this is what <laughs> Proverbs is getting at, look what um, the writer actually says here in the beginning. Of, in verse 10, a wife of noble character, who can find she is worth far more than rubies? Well, who is it that is worth far more than rubies? Well, we remember from earlier on in the book. It is, of course, wisdom herself. Um, she is more precious than rubies. Nothing you can desire can compare with her. So that's Proverbs 3.15 and also Proverbs 8.11. Proverbs 20.15 says, Gold there is and rubies in abundance, but lips that speak knowledge are a rare jewel. So this passage is, if you like, the goal, the um, target of my son. You remember the book of Proverbs is addressed to a young man starting out on life and his way into town. And um, he's told by his parents that he's going to meet these two women, wisdom and the adulteress. And the question is, which one will he hook up with? And um, the uh, parents are keen to recommend that he uh, seeks out wisdom. And so at the end of the book we have this description of wisdom, if you like. This is the, the target, the thing that the person, the woman, if you like, that uh, the young man is supposed to be uh, seeking out. And if we look at it, we find dignity and sound instruction and true and honest wealth, and those are all the marks of wisdom as they're described in chapters 8 of 9. And by contrast, just briefly, we're reminded again of the adulteress in verse 30. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, or actually more literally vain, something that um, is meaningless, has little depth. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So we have at the end, right at the end here that contrast just briefly again between the adulteress and the wife of noble character, of wisdom. And so it's not surprising here that in this passage we actually find the same themes as we find throughout the book of Proverbs. The virtues of hard work and honest trade and sound organisation and above all wise instruction. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised on her tongue are found uh, wisdom and sound instruction, we're told. So how are we to understand this passage? Um, and I can, would suggest to you actually that 
as it, it's true of most of Proverbs, you can actually interpret it at different levels. It's, thing, it's a thing we're supposed to think about, to meditate on, and learn from it in different ways. And so I would suggest there's at least three ways we can look at this. And uh, just to be traditional, I've got you three P's from Proverbs. Um, we can think of it as obviously what it is at face value, a pattern for a godly wife. And we can think of it as a picture of a well-organized society, summing up what we've been reading in Proverbs. But I think most importantly of all, we may think of it as a promise of fruitfulness um, if we seek out wisdom. And that's, um, so I really want to look at all three of those um, and, well, and we'll see as they go through how we can get those things from this passage. So I think if, even if, if we look, read it at the most basic level as, as just um, as a pattern for a, a godly wife, it's quite radical stuff actually. I think uh, it doesn't always say things we expect at all. Um, I once showed this to a feminist um, acquaintance of mine and her reaction was to take it as a kind of domestic slavery, a woman tied to the house just shows you really what, how often we uh, read into things rather than seeing what the writer is actually saying because it clearly doesn't say anything of the sort. And yet we find even some Christian interpreters who have made this passage say that a woman is supposed to be tied to her house and home and family and um, you know, shouldn't, almost shouldn't be doing anything else. But it really doesn't say that. And if you're a woman on the verge of marriage, I guess we have... There's two of those here this evening. Um, you might uh, read this interpretation and frankly you're more likely to be intimidated than encouraged, I would think. Um, but certainly this is an impressive woman. As one might say, it's a woman in executive mode. There's only one reference to the children in verse 28 and then they rise up and call her blessed. So, although she doesn't seem to be spending enormous amounts of time with them, um, she's certainly not neglecting them. She provides food for her family, but it says portions for her servant girls, so I don't think it's the cooking so much as is uh, in view here as the organising of it. Perhaps she does cook it herself, but it's mainly a matter of making sure that the family is properly provided for and has the things it needs. Remarkably, perhaps, she's economically independent. Did you notice this in verse 16? It says, um, she considered a, considers a field and buys it. Out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. Now, I think, actually, personally, I think joint accounts are a good idea, but I certainly don't think that um, the husband should be keeping very close track of the wife's finances in, in, a, in the wrong way. I mean, most, of course, most families do share their finances, but it's certainly not the suggestion that uh, the wife is not competent to um, handle finance or anything like that. On the contrary, she seems to be very astute financially and very independent financially. It's out of her own earnings that she um, buys a field and, and develops plants a plants of vineyard. 
she manages the household verse 27 she's no um, domestic slave she extends succor to the needy verse 20 she does that herself doesn't sort of uh, you know push her husband out to do it she does that herself it says um, in verse 16 as we already noted she buys a field and plants a vineyard even in this electronic age we would find it difficult to buy a field without going and visiting it and uh, organizing it and um, I don't suppose it suggests she actually dug it herself but she would have had to get got the um, workmen organized and uh, make it work she certainly would have had to get out to do it and she used an effective trader we see in verse 24 again she could hardly have done this if she was spend all her time in the house and never went out if you're going to sell stuff you need to get out there and sell it to the the merchants who are passing by um, and especially that must have been true remember in those days they didn't even have telephones let alone websites um, even they didn't have a proper postal service as far as I'm aware so if she's selling sashes to the merchant she must have been out come in she must have been out there um, talking to them so this is certainly not a woman who's tied to the kitchen sink she's a project manager she's an effective trader Noted that she selects wool and flax in verse 13. There's no way she could have done that without going and visiting the suppliers, the shepherds and the harvesters. So an obvious um, word to the husbands. If you want a wife like this, you need to give her the freedom to operate and the trust that she deserves. Well, notice how she's described. She's clothed with strength and dignity. She certainly says that she's clothed with strength and dignity but in fact she's also clothed with fine linen and purple uh, we see in verse 22 um, she's not uh, driven to sort of subjection and poverty by her husband or by her family and it says she can laugh at the days to come because she's no fear of the cold weather her whole husband the whole household is clothed and set with the best materials it says scarlet in our translation another translation apparently is double thickness they've got extra thick clothes so that even if it snows I don't think it snows very often in Palestine but <laughs> even if it does she's prepared and her family is prepared if she's going to produce goods that the merchants will fight to get their hands on she's going to need the best spinning wheel and the best loom isn't she verse 19 her family is well organized because even her servant girls are well prepared for now maybe like most western families I guess your household doesn't run to housemaids who do the cooking and cleaning but remember husbands you can always go the technology route you can get a dishwasher not for the sake of having stuff for the sake of it because life doesn't consist we're told in the abundance of possessions which become a substitute for God but if that makes us more productive in the kingdom then get a dishwasher get a washing machine get a hoover and in fact if she's going to sell sashes to the merchants nowadays she's going to need a decent computer and a website isn't she so um, 
if you want a wife like that husband's, encourage her. Don't uh, discourage her and spend, make her spend all the time scrubbing the floor. And yet, ladies, I'd suggest to you, this isn't a feminist have it all. This woman is family and community oriented, as it seems her husband is also. She doesn't put her career before her family, rather it's to the benefit of the family, as we saw earlier when we looked at the family. It's to the benefit of the community of the family as a whole. She has a concern for those who d depend on her, verses 11 and 15, but also for those who are outside her immediate circle. And that might be the destitute neighbor, verse 20, the poor and needy, but it might even be the rich merchant that she's trading with in verse 24. In fact, I would suggest to you what strikes one above all about this woman is her poise and balance, isn't it? She seems totally balanced, totally in control on top of things. And above all, we read, she speaks with wisdom and faithful instruction is on her tongue. This is 25 and 26. She's industrious, but she's not obsessive. She's competent, yet she's calm and good-humored, verse 25. She laughs at the times to come. She doesn't neglect her appearance, verse 22. Uh, she's clothed in fine linen and purple. Yet her beauty is much more than skin deep. She's watchful, verse 27. She watches over the affairs of her household. But she isn't a control freak. Do you know she can't do anything about the um, weather, the might snow? So she prepares for it. She's prudent, verse 18. She sees that her trading is profitable and her light lamp doesn't go out at night. I'm not sure, I couldn't quite work out whether that means she works at night or whether she means she's got the oil so that her lamp doesn't run out. But uh, either way, it um, it's means she's prudent about what she does. But yeah, she's also generous, as we saw. She's also able to help those who are in need. Who wouldn't want to be a part of this woman's circle, even if it's only as a housemaid? There's 15. This woman is a full and essential partner in the family enterprise, and her husband has really values her. And because Hubby himself is not stressed about micromanaging her affairs, he finds time to participate in the politics of the city. See this in verse 23. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. The city gate, of course, is where the city council would have met in those days. So, what does her husband have to say when he gets to the council and he gets up to give his maiden speech? Well, it tells us in verse 33, actually, doesn't it? No, not 33, that can't be right, there isn't a verse 33. Verse 31, sorry. He tells us, doesn't he? Gentlemen, I'd like to present to you the example of my wife. In fact, I would suggest to you that if we only ran the city the same way as my wife runs her household, we'd all be a lot better off and a lot happier. Because I think actually, this is not just a model of a family that's presented here. It's a model of a well-organized, godly community. 
And what we see particularly about this community is that it's a community that cares. And as I've already mentioned, the themes here are the themes of the whole book. It's a vision for a just and a happy society. So this lady is caring about providing the basic necessities of life for everyone, even those who are below her on the social scale. We notice that she provides, she's the mistress, is the servant of her servants. She provides the food for her maidens. She cares about benevolent management, verse 27. She watches over the affairs of her household. She cares about sound planning. When it's, verse 21, when it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. This is what our communities should be doing. She cares about sound government as such. Her husband is a politician. She cares about education, verse 26. Sound instruction is on her tongue. She cares about community spirit and morale in verse 28. This is the morale of her family, but surely it's saying more than that. A community, any community, should rise up and call their leaders blessed and one another blessed if it is a real commun caring community. And the less caring a community is, the less happy the people in it will be. And she cares for those who everyone else dismisses, for the poor and needy, verse 20. Again, so often that's forgotten in our communities. And what's more, it's not all done in a sort of grudging and minimal way, is it? It's all done with verve and industry. If you read verse 14 to 18, Tells us she gets up while it's still dark and so on. She's like the merchant ships bringing her food from afar. She gets up while it's still dark, providing food for her family. She considers a field and buys it out of her earnings. She plants a vineyard and so on. I mean, it makes you exhausted just reading it, doesn't it? Um. So it's done efficiently. It cares, this community cares about efficiency and quality. And it's not just utilitarian either. She makes coverings for her bed. She's clothed in fine linen and purple. It's uh, interested in art and craft and, and producing things that are of good quality and uh, not just basic. And it's a community that values efficiency and quality, perhaps we might say. And it's outward looking. Verse 24. She's... Uh, supplies the merchant with sashes. Community needs to think about its links with surrounding communities and helping and dealing with them. So she's, and um, it's confident, isn't it? Verse 25, she's clothed with strength and dignity. She can laugh at the days to come. Again, if our communities are founded on wisdom, they will be confident. They will laugh at the days to come, not because they can control everything, Things like snow will happen, but they're prepared and they can um, trust in the Lord that things will uh, be, can be dealt with. And above all, and I put on the slide there, this is a community, this is a, a, a lady and her family is a community that cares about people. 
The whole thing, you notice, is people-oriented. Even when it's talking about trading, it's with the, the relationships with the merchants. Even when she's talking about um, herself, in a sense, she's clothed in fine linen and purple. It's about people, what she, what she wears, rather than other things but that might have been signs of, of riches. She provides food for her family and for the servant girls. This is a community, above all, that cares about people. Husband, family, employees, business colleagues, the poor and needy, and all of them are treated with courtesy and respect. And where does all this come from? Well, as in everything in Proverbs, this wisdom proceeds from the fear of the Lord. Verse 30, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Remember, this is the chorus that runs all through Proverbs, the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And yet, perhaps we're sitting there now feeling a little bit uncomfortable. Is the real world quite like that, we might think? In fact, gentlemen, I've got some bad news for you. I don't think this paragon of feminine virtue really exists. Um, in fact, the clue perhaps is in the text in verse 10. There's a wife of noble character who can find. She's worth far more than rubies. You might find it easier to make your fortune down a, a diamond mine than to locate this girl. And even suppose by some remote chance you did manage to find her. Well, I can tell you, she's going to have a lot more sense than to marry you, isn't she? <laughs> You'd be right out of her league. So yes, this does tell you what to look for if you're seeking a wife or a husband. And yes, this wife, I'm sure, is a better noble, the wife of noble character is a better role model for women than any uh, TV domestic goddess or, or have-it-all feminist superwoman. And yet, I'd like to remind you of the words of a woman who was noted always for having wisdom and faithful instruction on her tongue, Edith Schaefer, the wife, of course, of Francis Schaeffer. She wrote several books about family life. The one quoted from there, What is a Family? Another one about hidden art, which perhaps relates to this business of um, making coverings for a bed and clothed in fine linen and purple. They're both worth reading, as are her other books. But she did say the following, and there are all sorts of versions of this quotation. I can't find my copy of What is a Family, so I had to look on the internet. Um, but this, I think, is the correct quotation, and it's quite a good version of it anyway. And it says the following, when people insist on perfection or nothing, then they get nothing. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? If you say you're going to have perfection or nothing, you know what you're going to get. So, men, remember that your wife is only human, and praise her anyway. And women, let me say, don't drive yourself into stress and guilt by chasing some mirage of domestic perfection. Because that would make you exactly the opposite of this calm, confident, competent woman, wouldn't it? She laughs at the days to come. So often, 
with women who spend their time and put their focus on their family and household just get stressed over it, just feel guilty that their children are not perfect models of happy shiny children again just as the um, this lady doesn't exist, that perfect child doesn't exist either, I can tell you that so don't drive yourself into guilt by chasing some mirage of perfection do what you can but don't trust in uh, woolly jumpers uh, if it snows and burning the candle at both ends getting up before it's dark and carrying on late into the night because your heavenly father knows that you need these things so rather put your confidence in God So that actually makes us think, doesn't it? Why does this book of Proverbs that's so much immersed in the everyday life, so realistic as the wisdom literature always is, so embedded in gritty reality, why does it end as it does? Why do we have that pattern of kingship that we were looking at last week? that no human ruler has ever matched. And why do we have this picture of a beautiful woman if we're told she's unobtainable? Who can find her? Is it some vision of what should be but never can be? Is it some utopian dream of Avalon or a memory of a golden age um, which actually never existed? Well, I'd like to suggest to you that it's not that at all. What it is in fact is a promise of real fruitfulness. Because we read, don't we, there was a husband who went looking for his bride and he looked not just down in a diamond mine but in the depths of the grave itself. And when he found her, it wasn't like Eurydice, I can never say that, Eurydice, dancing with the blessed spirits. What he found was a shriveled, mutilated corpse. Do you like those CSI problem, programs, CSI and um, Silent Witness? The, the props and makeup guys have a field day, don't they, when they produce these models of these mutilated bodies. They're absolutely hideous, some of them. And yet that's what the Lord Jesus found that his bride looked like. I always have to look away when they get to the cutting up part. I'd never make a pathologist. I'm too squeamish. So what happens? The scientists can look inside, can't they? And with care and dedication, they can piece together what happened. Who was this per person? How did she die? That's a useful and even a noble task in itself. But there's one thing the crime lab can't do and that's to bring that shriveled corpse back to life. They can't restore health and beauty to a, that pile of dried up bones and torn flesh. But there is one who can, and that's the Lord Jesus. He's the one who, as pictured in Ezekiel, prophesies to the bones and they live. And he says that whoever you are, whatever it was that killed you, I can make you into that wife of noble character. It's a promise of fruitfulness. 
And so we can remember what. Sorry, it's the wrong way. What Paul wrote. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In the same way husbands ought to live their wives as, love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but feels and cares, feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. So Christ has promised that he will present her radiant, the church radiant and beautiful. We recall those words of Jesus himself that I put on the first slide. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it comes with a promise, doesn't it? For they will be filled or another thing that Jesus said, John 15, 4 and 5. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What we find at the end of Proverbs here is a promise of beauty. Not just for a married woman, but for the whole church of Christ. And it's not the fleeting, frenetic charm of the adulteress, which is deceptive and a beauty that's fleeting. It's the mature, calm, eternal beauty of wisdom herself. It's not the hopeless, despairing dream of fulfilment that folly and the world offer coming here for instant satisfaction. It's not that that's promised, but a promise of genuine worth that's found only through wisdom, through Jesus Christ. And then, through that, through Christ, we find something that's genuinely praiseworthy. Verse 28, her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the reward she's earned, and let her works bring her praise in the city gate. The key there, as always, is a woman who fears the Lord, a woman who call, calls on Christ. And to my son also, so it's men as well as women. The key is to call on the name of the Lord. He who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But Jesus himself promised that if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So wisdom does bear fruit. Wisdom does change people. If we remember that wisdom is, the, is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ and the practical things that we learn in the book can only really be done as Paul says through the power of the Holy Spirit so don't think of don't think of this gentleman as a checklist for getting a, a wife but rather think 
of what you and your wife can be through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ that something beautiful can be created and as I say it is the beauty of wisdom herself